Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. And this week, we ask a best-selling writer of historical fiction what the past can tell us about power today. An attempt to universalise politics, to get away from the specifics, to certain basic rules and laws of the way politics operates. Populism. I think you would probably learn the value of a two-thirds majority. And the vagaries of the ballot box. I've become in my old age a great opponent of this idea of ever-widening franchises being an ever-greater thing for democracy. I'm joined by the award-winning novelist Robert Harris, whose many best-selling works of historical fiction have delved into the nature of power and intrigue across a range of alternative histories. Fatherland took us into a world in which Germany won the Second World War, while Archangel unveiled the what-ifs of Stalin's secret heir. Harris is a former British political journalist, but he's turned his novelist's gaze to power in many different forms since then. His new work, Conclave, throws us into the heart of the Vatican, exploring the plots and machinations behind the secretive vote to elect a new pope. So, Robert, your latest book takes us into the corridors of power, but in the church rather than the state. Are you finding religion more interesting than politics these days? Well, there's as much politics in the Vatican as there is in the Congress or the Palace of Westminster, I think. So I see it really almost as the apotheosis of uh, the work that I've done on politics not least because it mingles the sacred and the profane and that the cardinal electors and the candidates for Pope are all obviously deeply religious and they are praying for guidance from God all the time and yet at the same time there's an undeliable element of worldly ambition and it's the mix between the two which I found fascinating. We have Brexit going on at home, Jeremy Corbyn shaking up the British Labour Party in which you've had a historic interest and written much about. You might think there's quite a lot for you to focus on closer to hand than Rome. I think the satirist Armando Iannucci said he wouldn't write the thick of it now because politics feels fictional enough, his words. Is contemporary politics still fit or attractive material for novelists? I think it is, but I think we're too close to it. I mean, the things you mentioned, Brexit, for instance, you know, we're not going to really know for a few years yet just how huge an impact it's going to have and what whether it will be for good or ill. Uh, it, that's a work in progress, uh, as indeed is the Labour Party. Nothing dates more quickly than an attempt to try and catch the zeitgeist. And one of the reasons I'm very strongly drawn to writing historical fiction is it doesn't age. You know, I mean, the books that I did about Cicero or the book about code-breaking in the war or Pompeii, they're as good or bad as they were on the day they were published. They're still as fresh. Whereas novels that I've done that did try to capture the moment, I did a novel about algorithmic trading, for instance, The Fear Index. I'm sure that's now, although it's not very long ago since it was written, I'm sure it's quite out of date now. 
And your fascination with the Labour Party, you tweet a lot about it, you occasionally comment on it, and you say some pretty salty things about what has happened to Labour. Do you think it will be possible when we look back to make sense of this as a historic eruption? Or are we just seeing something of a kind of party that lost control of its internal process? Do you yet have, even if you can't write the novel, the novelist's eye on it? Well, I think we're seeing a huge global working through of processes that seem to have started with 9-11, although they probably started before that, and everything is in flux. The left is collapsing all over the planet, not just here. Uh, The left seems to have borne the brunt of the financial crash and the effects that have flown from it, and there's a rise of, I won't say irrationality, but there's a, there's a certain recoil from the established order, and you see it in the American presidential election, you see it, I think, in Brexit, you see it in the British Labour Party. There's a rise of fundamentalist religion, all sorts of things which, which one, growing up in the 60s and 70s, thought one would never see, that the world would become more scientific and, and, and more stable. It doesn't feel like that at all anymore. I mean, I'm always reluctant of the kind of Arnold Toynbee great, you know, theory of everything. Nevertheless, I, I don't think these things are happening in isolation, whether it's to do with new technology, the Internet, who knows, but something is certainly shifting. But you have taken personal steps about it, haven't you? You left the Labour Party, for instance, as I would understand it, in protest at its move to the left. No, I rejoined it in an attempt to... Um, but you had left it first. I know. Well, I sort of that sounds too conscious. I mean, I was sort of a member and then it kind of lapsed. You know, I was never sort of I'm not a politician. I've sort of drifted in and out of it. But after the Brexit vote, I thought, well, what what could one do? And I thought, well, if Corbyn wins again, at least I won't be able to say I'm just watching on the telly. I didn't do anything about it. I thought I will join because I believe that there has to be, especially at this time, a more coherent opposition. And that's what I joined to do. It seems to have been obviously a total waste of time. But still, when I look at Corbyn, once he's uh, elected, I will at least be able to think, well, I did all I could uh, to try and stop this calamity occurring. You think it is a calamity? Undoubtedly. I mean, Corbyn is only the half of it. I mean, he's the sort of back end of the pantomime horse. The front end, the brains, the McDonnell, the shadow chancellor is... um, I mean, I, I saw he was asked a few years ago what were his formative authors. Uh, He said Marx, Lenin, Trotsky, and for political action, Rosa Luxemburg. The the Labour Party has been captured by people who shouldn't actually be in it. They were the people who were beaten back in the 1980s. Now they've taken control of the structure, and it, it does look at the moment quite hard to see how they're going to be got rid of. And that seems to reflect quite poorly on intellectuals, left liberal intellectuals, and a kind of either an inability or simply a, a, a lack of focus in presenting something else or in fighting it off. Can you begin to make sense of that? I, I think that where the Labour Party got under Tony Blair was a great place when times were good economically, when the world was growing. Once the economic troubles hit, then that made that whole project, which was really founded on the engine of, of, of an expanding economy, it didn't really work didn't, anymore. Then, of course, there were specific problems with Tony Blair, not just the Iraq war, but also his leaving of parliament and then the making of money, which has sort of discredited a lot of the old supporters of Blair. So they lost their leader and also they really sort of lost their honour in a way and respect. And the Labour Party trio of victories, which were 
extraordinary achievement had now been airbrushed as if as as if we lived in a Stalinist party. That's a disaster. And I, it's a big claim, isn't it? Then certainly, as the author of a, a book about the revival of Stalinism in in the Soviet Union. A fiction, but with, yeah. with, with 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 some traces in reality. To use the word Stalinist about Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party, justified? No, I'm saying it's. I'm using it in a loose term. That that the idea that a particular phase of development in the party is now verboten and is derided. Uh, that seems to me to be, if you want to use a crude term, Stalinist in the terms of the way it seems to obliterate a kind of memory almost. I think the Labour Party is in deep trouble and it may be that it has outlived its usefulness. I mean, there's nothing that guarantees that parties will go on forever. Uh, we will wait and see. I mean, as again, I choose to write novels about the past because it's very hard. Anything I wrote now about the Labour Party would be out of date long before it was even hit the bookshops. Now, what about America, Donald Trump and his thirst for power and that fragmentation that you reflected on there, perhaps an even more dramatic form there uh, in the form of, of Trump coming up and his quest for the White House? Is there a reason why you would shy away from that? Is that the same reason that it's too immediate, you can't yet make full sense of it? Or do you think that America is best left to American writers? I think there's something in that, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I did once try and write a novel about America and I quickly gave up uh, and wrote about ancient Rome instead as a sort of allegory for American power. Trump, I think it's far too early to get really a proper handle on him. It is extraordinary phenomenon that really the more crazy the thing he says, the more the great and the good and the experts say, but this is all wrong and lies and this is false, it does him no harm at all. It's as if we've moved into, it's like antimatter has taken over and it's very strange and quite alarming. Honestly, I don't think what could be said about Trump that can actually affect him. You know, you can say he's he's taken money from charity. He's he's fiddled his tax returns. He's you know, there's nothing you could what would conventionally have destroyed a political candidate only seems to add to his luster as an anti-establishment figure. Does he remind you of anyone, ancient world or later? I'm not sure that he does, um, because I think he's a product of a uniquely modern era. Of Not a demagogue in any sense that you would be able to find traces of us. Well, he's so unimpressive intellectually. I mean that, you know, I suppose you could, it's in certain ways in the way he stands and looks and struts and Mussolini comes to mind. But Mussolini was not a stupid man. <laughs> Trump is sort of the element of clownishness. He's more like Arturo Uy in the Brecht play. He bewilders and baffles me, and I'm afraid it's going to take me a little bit more time to find some fictional means of coming to terms with Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton recently came under fire for concealing her pneumonia, and we live in a world of smartphones and social media when it's difficult, if not impossible, for the powerful to keep secrets. And yet here's the conundrum. It's also a theme in, in conclave is how does secrecy go hand in hand with those seeking power and those seeking to be on the, the world stage? There are no such things as secrets anymore. I mean, everything emerges. That really was the moral for me of my novel about the Dreyfus case, an officer and a spy. In fact, the character says in that. I mean, the French government and military tried very determinedly to 
keep that a secret, but there were popular newspapers developing at that time, a mass media, uh, whistleblowers. It was impossible to keep the lid on it. And it's become even more the case now that everything sooner or later will be known, I think. Candidates have to adapt to that. I mean, the Hillary Clinton episode is very interesting. If she'd simply said, I've seen my doctor, I've got pneumonia, I will have to take two or three days off the campaign trail, it wouldn't have had much effect. But to actually pretend nothing is wrong, then to be seen being helped away, to try and cover that up and then hastily scramble out an explanation when you realise it's been filmed. It looked bad, and there's no doubt about it that she's almost the worst candidate to run against the Trump insurgency that you could imagine. She seems to sort of prove his point every time she appears, which is potentially tragic, I think. Yeah, unhappy coincidence. (laughs) What did you learn about power, power seeking, and the handling of power from studying the inner workings of the conclave? Well, the thing about the conclave, there was a great British novel, not great, but very entertaining British novel in the 50s called The Masters by C.P. Snow, which was about an election in an all-male environment in a Cambridge college for who would take it over. And I remember when I, I read it when I was young, it always struck me as power at its at close-up and personal, five, ten people in a room, not a huge campaign and all the rest of it. And Conclave is very much along those lines. There are 111 carnal electors. Uh, and it's all about, uh, in microcosm, the things that you see in a bigger election. For instance, momentum, which the cardinals would say is the arrival of the Holy Spirit, moving them in one direction or another. But we, outside the conclave, would say momentum. That is all important. The way in which a favourite going into an election like that so often loses because... Uh, it's easier in a conclave to rally against someone than it is to rally around them. And v- and there is a saying in Rome uh, that he who goes into the conclave, a pope, comes out a cardinal. It's full a conclave of those sorts of political rules. And, and my entire career as a novelist in many ways has been an attempt to universalise politics, to get away from the specifics of Jeremy Corbyn or 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 whoever happens to be the person at the moment, to certain basic rules and laws of the way politics operates. I find that endlessly fascinating. What could troubled modern politics learn from the conclave? I think you would probably learn the value of a two-thirds majority, which you have to get if you're going to be Pope. You're not revisiting the EU referendum there, are you? Well, I do think that for such a vast decision to rest on 51.8% of a a of the vote electorate or the people that turned out to vote, I should say, is 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 crazy. I mean, uh, you know, you can't overturn rules at the Garrick Club unless you get a two-thirds majority. Now, there's a very British reference. You would have thought they would have put in a similar safeguard uh, for something as big as this. So I think I think a good majority is, is a lesson from the conclave. Make it short. I mean, conclave lasts two, three days. It doesn't drag on for month after month. And to have electors who know the candidates, see them. I've become in my old age a great opponent of this idea of ever-widening franchises being an ever-greater thing for democracy. The Labour Party is at its most pitiful and helpless that it has been practically since its inception. At the same time, it has a mass membership of around half a million people engaged in voting. The one does not translate into the other, and 
I like the idea of a conclave where, rather like political parties used to elect their leader from what it is, oligarchic. after all... It's a little oligarchic, is it not, to well, say that the franchise is too broad, let's uh, ignore it. You, you're asking me what lessons I learned. This is, a, this is a process that's been going on in the Catholic Church for 700 years, and they've risen to a point of having 1.25 billion members. It's not necessarily a failed organisation. Robert Harris, thank you very much. You've been listening to The Economist Asks with me, Anne McElvoy. Conclave is out now. If you've any thoughts on our discussion, why not join in our Conclave conversation by dropping us an email to radio at economist.com or via Twitter. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups... Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.